So it would be true to say that throughout history, this, um, we can see, especially in the, in the last 2,000 years since the, the church of Jesus has existed, that persecution has gone hand in hand with the existence of the church. What you'll see this morning unveiling in the, the time that Peter and John spend before the Supreme Court in this particular story is the very first example of persecution being brought against the name of Jesus on behalf of the church. The very first opposition. And it might surprise you to know that the court that they're about to stand before is the exact same court that executed Jesus. They handed down the verdict that Jesus was to be executed and turned over to the Romans. They couldn't actually carry out the execution themselves, so they had to let the Romans do it. You might not know that all of the apostles were actually killed for the sake of Jesus' name, except for church tradition tells us John. It appears that John lived his entire life out. As far as we know, he died somewhere in his 90s, but the rest of them died by the executioner's sword or, or by some other torturous means. In modern times, especially the church here in the West, we have not seen the kind of persecution that the early church saw. Now, in parts of our planet, especially in China and in the Middle East, the the church has come under persecution, and even more intensely so in the last 10 years. I think we're coming into a time here in the West, in the United States, where we're going to begin seeing the persecution of the church. That we would face persecution should not come as any surprise to us, because Jesus said, If you stand for me, you're going to face persecution. Let me remind you of a couple verses specifically. It says that, uh, first in John 15, 18, Jesus speaking, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now, we also see from Paul, when he wrote to Timothy, he had the same very similar things to say, 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not may be persecuted, but will be persecuted. So if you haven't encountered conflict yet in your walk with Christ, you will. And some of you already have, and you know what it is to live with conflict. It's inevitable if you're going to stand for Christ and live a Christ-centered life. So part of the question that we have to ask ourselves as we're working through this particular text in terms of persecution is, in the midst of my persecution when I'm going through that, who's in control? Who's in control? Because the the Sadducees and the Pharisees, as you're going to see this morning, the Supreme Court of the land, want Peter and John to believe that they're in control. Let's go to Acts chapter 4 and verse 1 and follow along. We'll pick up where we left off last week. It says this, "...as they were speaking to the people..." The priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. Now we know from the story that we've looked at over the last couple of weeks that Peter and John arrived at the temple about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. They came to watch the evening sacrifice and to participate in the hour of prayer, the 3 o'clock prayer hour. So they're there, obviously, at that period of time. But now we're told in verse 3, it's already evening. So they've been there a couple hours now. So before Peter and John can finish speaking to the crowd, 
the cops show up. The authorities are there to arrest them. Now, no doubt, there's a lot of chaos. And the chaos is because there's thousands of people who have gathered around to figure out why is this guy who was born disabled now able to walk? If you haven't been here in the last couple of weeks, the, the event that took place is that Peter and John spoke into the life of this man who was born disabled, and now he's completely whole. Jesus healed him, and he's walking perfectly, and the crowd can't figure it out. And so there's chaos and the authorities arrive, and there's confusion, and this explosion of crowd noise. And so what we discover here in these first couple of verses is that the leaders are incredibly upset, not just because the worship hour at 3 o'clock has been interrupted, but also because they're teaching in the name of Jesus. Now, here's a little background for you. When it says the captain of the guard, a captain of the guard is like the chief of police, so you have a police officer like here in Meridian Township. We have officers, and then there's the chief of police who oversees the police officers. So that's the captain of the guard. He's over all of the authorities, and he actually is only second in command to the high priest because there's so many thousands of people who show up at the temple day in and day out. This captain of the guard has the responsibility to maintain order. And in this moment, order is not being maintained. Well, also the Sadducees are being mentioned there. Well, who are they? They're highly influential. They are the political power of Israel at this particular time. They wield so much power that they actually control the seat of the high priest. As a matter of fact, in the first century, every one of the high priests came out of the line of the Sadducees. So they're the dominant political force. Typically, they're quite wealthy. They're the sons of nobility, but they're also known for this reputation, incredibly snobbish and condescending to a fault, looking down on everyone else who doesn't measure up to their standards. So those are part of the groups who are showing up there. You get an insight into the attitude of the Sadducees when you look back at the life of Jesus, and they wanted to arrest him. Look with me at John 11 on the screen. It says the chief priests, meaning the Sadducees, and the Pharisees convened a council. And we're saying, what are we doing for this man, meaning Jesus, is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. That's why they're greatly disturbed. They're bothered, according to what verse 2 tells us, because there's something going on in the name of Jesus. The disciples here are teaching the people. Now think about the disciples. They've got no reputation. They've got no formal training. They have no credentials. And they have no authorization from the temple overseers to be speaking in this moment. Yet, they've got this huge crowd. Thousands of people are gathered to hear them. And what are they doing? They're talking about Jesus and his resurrection. This is absolutely intolerable. For the Sadducees, they can't put up with this. Here's part of the reason why. If Jesus has actually risen, like the disciples are saying, they're going to be declared heretics because the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. They don't only not believe in Jesus as Messiah. They teach people there is no resurrection. That's why they're sad, you see. Some of you are paying attention. Excellent. I know it's an old one, but it's an easy one. Okay, so in in this case, the implications are staggering because they have rejected Jesus. 
that Peter and John are teaching in the temple, the resurrection of Jesus in the heart of the Sadducees' domain is absolutely repulsive to them. This can't be tolerated. Now, it's too late in the day to construct a trial. Everybody's gone home for dinner. It's the evening. That's what verse said, 3 said. And so because the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court, has left, Peter and John are thrown in jail overnight, and the trial is going to be the next day. This is very curious to me. When you think about this setting, verses 1 through 3, you might expect when persecution begins, when the authorities begin to shove their way through the crowd and they seize Peter and John and throw them in jail, would you not think that the people would be very intimidated that their leaders have just now come in and seized Peter and John and hauled them away under guard? Would that not be a setting in which you would expect people to be very reluctant to identify with Jesus? Well, the reverse is true. Look at what persecution does. Verse 4 It says, but many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. So there's a principle here. Persecution leads to expansion within the church. Now, clearly there's a purging that takes place. Those who are not really believers are going to be scared to death and perhaps be pushed away. But those who are really believing that Jesus is the Christ... We're seeing expansion here. So the lesson is really, really clear. Opposition to the gospel does not necessarily obstruct the gospel. Opposition to the gospel doesn't obstruct where the gospel is bold. God moves, and you're watching it right here in Acts chapter 4. Let's go into verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. And Annas, the high priest, was there and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. That's code for they brought out the big guns. Annas, Caiaphas, John, Alexander. Well, why were they mentioning all of these? Caiaphas was the high priest, but Rome deposed him and brought Annas in. But Annas is the son-in-law of Caiaphas. So there's a family connection. And John and Alexander, those are the sons-in-laws who are in line after Annas to become the high priest. So we've got the entire power of Israel gathered together along with the Sanhedrin. Well, who's the Sanhedrin? That's the supreme court of the day. It's the ruling body. Seventy members plus one, meaning the high priest. The 70 members are all of the lawyers of Israel, the supreme court of the entire nation. And they're charged with a specific responsibility. Their responsibility is to protect the law. In this case, the law of Moses. They are responsible for examining every new teacher and every new teaching that comes in. And so they have the right to investigate. Now, very interesting, as you're observing this, you're going to see that Peter and John offer no resistance whatsoever. They're respecting the authorities who are over them. As they're arrested, as they're arraigned, they submit. And here's why I believe that they do. They know that God is in control. God is in control of the circumstances, even though they're being put in jail. Persecution is about to give them an opportunity, an opportunity that they could not have imagined 24 hours earlier. They could have never imagined standing before the Supreme Court 
of the entire nation, and they're about to be able to explain who Jesus is. Now, it might help you to know that the Sanhedrin, when they gathered together, they met in the hall of hewn stone, meaning carved stone, which was a chamber that was just outside the temple, but part of the temple complex. And in this hall of hewn stone, what you would have to picture is a setting much like the shape of a horseshoe. And an individual, when they were put on trial, was put in the center of the horseshoe. And all of the professional lawyers of the land made up the seating around that horseshoe so that that individual who was in the center knew that they were on trial for whatever circumstance they were being charged with in order to give an answer to the authorities of the land. So verse 7 gives us that background. It says this, When they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, By what power or in what name have you done this? The question is legal. They have every right to ask that question. No one's going to say, I move to object. I contest that question because it's a legal question. The members of the Sanhedrin certainly have seen this disabled man many times. They make their living at the court. This guy, we're told, is 40 years old. They've come in and out every day. Certainly they've seen the disabled man at the gate. How was he healed? Dr. Um, Homer Kent gives us a little bit of background into this situation so that we understand why they would ask this question so emphatically. He said it this way, Mosaic law specified that whenever someone performed a miracle and used it as the basis for teaching, he was to be examined. And if the teachings were used to lead men away from the God of their fathers, the nation was responsible to stone him. That's according to Deuteronomy 13. But the reverse is true. If a miracle was performed and the teachings were used to lead people to God, then that person was to be listened to as though they were a messenger from God. So the Sanhedrin demands what power and what name has been used to do this. Now, if you remember what we talked about a couple weeks ago, if you were here, the concept of the name in the Bible represents authority or power. And so that's why you see them asking specifically, in what power? So now the question is implying something. The question is implying that Peter and John are rebels because the Sanhedrin is saying, we didn't give you the authority. We didn't give you the right to do this. Who did? And this presents the opportunity for Peter to unleash truth. Go with me forward into verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you in good health. There is absolutely no turning back now. Peter has opened the floodgates. Now, picture he and John sitting in prison all night long. They've had plenty of opportunity to think through their options. But verse 8 tells us one particular element was absolutely critical to them coming into the setting before the Supreme Court. And that particular element is that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Without that, they may have well has kept silent. Peter couldn't speak at all. 
You and I this morning, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, as you sit here, you received the Holy Spirit at the moment of your salvation. God's Word promises that. The Holy Spirit came into you and sealed you for all eternity, and nothing can separate you from the love of Christ, according to what Scripture tells us, because of the Holy Spirit indwelling you. But this concept of filling, that's what we talked about over the last few weeks, that the Holy Spirit comes in power and fills individuals. He's already there, but fills them to a point where they can speak powerfully on, in the name of Jesus. And I, I, bear with me as I think through this analogy because I was wrestling through it this week myself, and it occurred to me that I could probably explain it this way if, if you're wrestling with the imagery. If you happen to have a uh, rheostat light in your house, I happen to have one in my kitchen, and by that I mean there's a dimmer switch on it. I can move the dimmer switch all the way down to the bottom. The power is still there, but my light goes really, really soft. But if I hit the rheostat switch and move it all the way up to the top, the light goes full power. If you want to take that analogy and transfer it over to being filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter has experienced this moment in which the Holy Spirit comes full power upon him. And in that moment, he can be an effective witness. To be an effective witness for Christ requires the filling of the Holy Spirit. And I will tell you this morning, you would be absolutely amazed at what the Holy Spirit can say through you in moments like that. Even if you're a fisherman who's untrained and uneducated, The filling of the Holy Spirit occurs when we walk in obedience, when we surrender to the will of God, when we're living life the way God called us to live, not according to the way that we want to live. One example, and I'm not calling this one example out for any particular reason, just because Scripture does, in Ephesians 5.18, it refers to this contrast of being filled with the Spirit. Look with me on the screen. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, right away, you might be going to the thought of, well, what does that mean about individuals who drink wine? Understand the setting in Ephesians 5. Paul was writing to the people at Ephesus who were involved in both pagan rituals and worshiping Jesus. And in their pagan celebrations in Acts chapter, Ephesians chapter 5, they were actually showing up for communion dinners already hammered. And, and Paul was telling them, this is, can't be. Be filled with the Spirit, not filled with wine if you're worshiping Jesus. So I'm not calling it out for any particular reason other than Scripture speaks to a lot of instances like that of the contrast of being filled with the power of the Holy Spirit as, as opposed to being filled with earthly things. What does that look like in our life? Well, it looks like righteous living that we would be yielded to God's will for our life. And so when we're yielded to that, he releases power into the believer's life. This is absolutely foundational. It is absolutely key if you're going to face opposition. Jesus said specifically, in the moments when you face opposition and you're under persecution, you've got to yield to the teaching power of the Holy Spirit who will speak through you. Let me show you an example of that. Luke, Luke 12, this is Jesus speaking to his followers. Luke 12, 11. When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not become anxious about how or what you should speak in your defense or what you should say. 
for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. See, that explains how Peter and John are able to speak with such boldness and such eloquence. What you're watching unfold here far surpasses their own ability or their own experience, but it's coupled with something. They're willing to seize the opportunity. They're not standing there with their mouth closed in this setting. They're willing to speak. Make no mistake, these individuals that they stand before are the most powerful men in the nation. They are so powerful that they were able to intimidate Rome into crucifying Jesus. Rome had already determined through Pilate to set Jesus free, to release him. But because the Sanhedrin is so powerful and they know how to play the political game, They incited the crowd and they persuaded Rome to go ahead and execute an innocent man. That's how powerful they are. And Peter and John know that. But instead of being frightened into compromise, you see Peter go on the offensive. And how does he do that? Well, the very first thing he does is he turns the table and he raises this question. Is it wrong for us to heal a sick man? If that's what we're on trial for, well, we'll explain to you the reason why we did that. So instead of being frightened, he goes on to the offensive. So in verse 10, he says, it's in the name of Jesus that this was done. By the way, the one you crucified. By the way, God raised him. They executed Jesus. God raised Jesus. What's Peter saying to them? You killed the one whom God favored. This is very, very significant. They're refusing to compromise. No offensive things are being removed from the conversation. They're telling the Sanhedrin exactly as it is. That should be a great admonition for us as we look at this story because what we talked about last week is witnessing involves bad news. If you're going to talk about Jesus and you're going to talk to people about who they are before the eyes of God, you've got to be willing to tell them the truth. That's exactly what we see Peter and John doing. They're willing to say, here's the bad news. We're not going to decorate the truth. We're just going to tell you exactly like it is. You killed the one God favored, the one whom God raised, speaking very, very boldly. Now, let's go into context here in verse 8. Specifically, in this moment, Peter and John are speaking to two entities, speaking to the rulers and the elders of Israel, it says. The opposition that the rulers and the elders are bringing in this moment is actually part of prophecy. God said it would be this way. Now, this is why this is so significant for us to understand. The Old Testament didn't just say that Jesus would be executed. It said that Jesus would be rejected, but not just rejected by the nation, that it would be rejected by the builders, by the leaders of Israel. So when we see verse 11 unfold in just a moment, when Peter begins quoting the book of Psalms, leaning into the Old Testament, he's literally telling them, God saw this coming. So here's the undercurrent underneath here. It's very, very relevant for us. The Sanhedrin thinks they're in control. They brought Peter and John into the hall of hewn stone. They've gathered the 70 leaders of Israel around them, and they're demanding an answer. They're trying to intimidate Peter and John. 
But Peter and John understand in this setting, God is in control. And that's why you see Peter begin to quote the book of Psalms because he knows God always knows. God is always in control. Watch this with me now. Verse 11. He is the stone which was rejected. Capital stone, capital was, capital rejected. That's because Peter's reaching back into the Old Testament, quoting the Old Testament. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved." There's something much, much bigger going on here than just quoting the book of Psalms. Peter has just told them in no uncertain terms, you're in conflict with God. God saw this coming. You're going to reject Jesus? God gave him the place of preeminence. Do you really want to go to battle with God? He's the stone that was rejected by you, the builders of the nation. If you get a chance later today, read Psalm 118 and go to verse 22. It specifically is where Peter is quoting from. It is definitely messianic. And these individuals who are gathered in the hall of hewn stone, they know precisely what he's referring to. He's telling them, you are actually leading the people away from God, not us. So here's what I see going on in this moment. I don't think that Peter is trying to shame them. I think he's giving them an opportunity to repent. I think he's presenting to them the truth. Repent, you guys. Stop going this way. That's why verse 12 is the knockout punch. When you come into verse 12, it absolutely floors you. And I want you to hear me on this if you've never looked at verse 12 very closely before. What I'm about to say will get you killed in certain parts of planet Earth. If you walk into certain parts of the Middle East and you proclaim that Jesus is the only way to God and there is no other way, it will get you executed. It would get you executed in the first century. It may be moving out to other parts of our globe today. So understand, what I'm about to speak on here is absolutely loaded. When he says in verse 12, there is salvation in no one else, that is absolutely a setup for inviting conflict into your life. You want to tick people off who believe they've got God on a leash? Just try telling them they totally misunderstand, that they don't understand what it means to get to the Father. They are not destined for heaven if they reject Jesus. That is what Peter is saying. Very, very clear. So this is why I think he's calling them to repentance. If these men, the elite of the land, if they would be saved, they must change their minds about Jesus. That's why I think he's calling them to repentance. He's already stated the healing that took place is through Jesus. The power, it's through Jesus. Salvation, it's through Jesus. There is no other name under heaven. This truth, church, is not an invention of Peter. He's not the first one to say it. The first one to say it was Jesus. He said it about himself. Look look with me on the screen. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That is absolutely the distinctive of the Christianity that you belong to. And I know, I know it goes against the grain of our society. We live in a pluralistic world. 
where people want to believe there's many paths to God. We serve a distinctive God in a very inclusive age, and this is so hard today. But we must remember, we serve an exclusive Christ who is willing to say, I'm the way. I am the truth. I am the life. There's no other way to the Father except through me. And that is so hard for our world to hear because they quickly would like to call us very narrow-minded. You are so intolerant. I can't believe how bigoted you are. You think your way is the only way? I've had people say that to me and walk away from me at times. Maybe you've had the same conversation before. As a result, we become the targets of society. But here's the truth according to God's Word. The biblical reality is there's only two paths. Jesus said there's a very, very wide path, a very wide road that leads to destruction. And he himself said, the path that leads to heaven is very narrow, and it leads through me. Why in this setting is Peter not more afraid? Why does Peter not fear these men? They're incredibly intimidating because of this. If Jesus is the only way to be saved, then any other way must, by its own nature, lead to death. Peter knows this truth, and he wants them to know the truth. And what I want you to notice in this passage is there is not a hint of compromise. There is zero room for compromise here. There's no accommodation for other views whatsoever. So to me, this is incredibly magnificent. The apostles never water down the fact that apart from Jesus, there is no salvation. So just think this through. That means that if Jesus had never showed up, it doesn't mean that there's a second best way. It means there is salvation in no other way except through Jesus. And if he didn't come, I'd be destined for destruction. You would too. That's the truth of the Bible. Verse 13, now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Let me come back into that beginning theme I started with this morning. In God's kingdom, availability is more important than ability. These guys are speaking so powerfully that you would not know that they're not trained. To hear them is to be impressed not only with their content, but with their delivery to the degree it causes their adversaries, the most learned men in the nation, to look at them and be amazed. Literally, verse 13, these guys are uneducated, they're untrained, they're not professional theologians. But what are they, church? They're available. They're yielded to the Holy Spirit. They're willing to let the Spirit flow through them and speak. You look at the way that they're speaking, you know this is not the language of fishermen. Uh, Here's something you may not know. Literacy rate in the first century was very, very high among the people of Israel. Reading and writing was extremely important, and every child was educated. But it was widely believed by the upper echelon of society that country boys the fishermen and the farmers were incapable of maintaining sustained theological conversations. So they they would have simple how-you-doing kind of conversations, but they would never go into the heart of the matter. This is why they're amazed. They're not only arguing a defense that two fishermen can successfully argue a case before the Supreme Court is absolutely shocking. 
And so the explanation they come up with is, these guys, they hung out with Jesus, didn't they? They're people who have been with him. They're his disciples. Now, here's the dilemma. No matter which way the court turns, they're trapped. And they know that they're trapped. They cannot deny the miracle. The man is standing right in front of them. The guy who was disabled is now walking. But they can't explain how uneducated, untrained men who were not sent from God could do this. What do we do in this situation? Jesus is dead. They killed him. But these two guys are saying this has been done in the power of Jesus' name. Church, if there was ever a time for the claims of the resurrection that you believe in to be put to death and be silenced, it's right here. All the Sanhedrin has to do in this moment is produce the body of Jesus. He's only been dead four weeks. All they have to do is put Jesus out there and say, this one that you say, there's his body. We've got the proof. He died. But they can't do it. Matter of fact, Dr. Bruce spoke into this. I'd like you to see his quote. He said, it is particularly striking that neither on this nor any other subsequent occasion did the Sanhedrin take any serious action to to disprove the apostles' central affirmation, the resurrection of Jesus. Had it seemed possible to refute them on this point, how readily would the Sanhedrin have seized the opportunity? Had they succeeded, how quickly and completely the new movement would have collapsed. Love that. Wonderful insight. Powerful. Now, if Peter's goal has been to soften the hearts of the Sanhedrin, he absolutely failed. His goal was not to soften their hearts. His goal was to speak truth and allow the Holy Spirit to have room to move. So Peter speaks truth, but they're not willing to hear it. Watch in verse 14. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Now, Peter and John have just made an excellent argument. Their defense is they haven't been leading people away from God. They're leading people to God. And their argument is absolutely unanswerable. As a matter of fact, the commitment that Jesus made in Luke chapter 12 when he said, don't worry, don't be anxious. When you go in before the synagogues and the courtrooms, I'll be there. The Holy Spirit will give you the words to say. You're looking at the promise fulfilled. Jesus promised that he would do that very thing, and they're living it out. So their question now in verse 16 is, what do we do? And the question is not easy to answer. Because Peter and John broke no laws whatsoever. Here's what we know about this council. What is very certain is they would deny the miracle if they could. But the guy is standing right in front of them. They can see the disabled man walking. But they have no inclination whatsoever to hear what Peter and John have just had to say in their arguments. So they have a need to stop the apostles, to keep them from communicating and stop their activity. So what do they do? Do we punish them? Well, that'd be really risky because the entire crowd is behind them. They just said, all of Jerusalem knows there's a noteworthy miracle. Here's what's really troubling to me in the midst of this just few verses we just looked at. They know they can't deny it, but they're willingly refusing to accept it. You're looking at human nature. You can't deny it, but I don't want to accept it. 
because it might cause me to have to change the things that I love. Jesus spoke to this, John 3.19. He said, the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light because the Sanhedrin loves the things that they do. They don't want anything to do with the truth that's right in front of them. Remember that, church. The next time you come up against someone who is unwilling to hear you out, think back to this time with the Sanhedrin. These individuals are not seeking the truth. They're looking for ways to avoid the truth. What's in their way? What's in the way of every individual who doesn't want to surrender their life to the name of Jesus? Pride, selfishness, our desire to have it our way. So verse 17 begins to end this. It says this, but so that it will not spread any further among the people, this is the Supreme Court speaking, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Here's the contrast. The court does not want the gospel message spread. And the court's going to make it very clear. They don't want people talking about Jesus. But God does want the gospel message spread far and near. Who's going to win that battle, church? God always wins. Some people never learn, and they keep going to battle against God. So the Sanhedrin is reliving their worst nightmare. They thought they put this thing to death. They executed Jesus for these very things, for his claims to be Messiah. Now his followers are repeating over and over again that Jesus is the Messiah, and they're backing it up with miracles. And what's worse yet, it seems to be irrefutable proof that Jesus actually was raised from the dead because there's being miracles done in his name. So here's their dilemma. They have to stop truth. But how do you stop truth? How do you stop momentum? Short of throwing them in prison or killing them, which they can't do because the crowd is their political backers and they can't offend their political backers, the only thing they have left in their arsenal, the same thing that's in the arsenal today, verse 18, to command them to stop speaking in the name of Jesus. That's an official verdict coming down from the Supreme Court saying, You can't talk about Jesus anymore. That should tell you, church, how much Satan fears your witness. Satan, since the first century, has been trying to silence the name of Jesus. You're seeing it right there. The church is barely a couple weeks old, and Peter and John are already being told, you can't talk about him anymore. This should very much help us to understand how sad things are today in terms of the fact that this is true of our generation. Satan has succeeded with far too many Christians today to get them to be silent. It should be a huge warning to us. If he can get you to be silent, he feels like he's won. What a contrast for us. The early believers had to be commanded not to speak in the name of Jesus. Today, believers have to be told to speak in the name of Jesus. What a contrast between the first century and the 21st century. 5,000 followers of Jesus now stand outside the chamber halls, outside the hall of hewn stone, and Peter and John make it very clear they have no intention of being silent. Yet what you watch as this ends is they're very gracious as they do it. Go with me to verse 19. Verse 19. 
But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard in the history of the church. You're looking at one of the most important crossroads ever. Everything hinged on their willingness to obey God and do exactly what Jesus told them to do. So they return the question with a question. Which court is higher? The court of man or the court of God? Who should we listen to? The Sanhedrin has just been impaled. They can't tell them not to obey God and to obey men instead. What are they going to do? Church, you need to know this morning that when God's instructions conflict with the government, only one entity is out of line, and it's not God. When God's instructions conflict with the government, it's the government that's out of line, not God. God's purposes are always true, always correct. I know that's very hard to hear. But when the government conflicts with God, it's God's rules that triumph. And that's what Peter and John are making very, very clear. Who do we listen to, God or man? Now, what I want you to notice here is there's no argument from Peter and John. They don't pretend to submit and then go on disobeying. They're very straightforward. What they do is they respectfully explain and say, We just can't do that. God has told us to do this. We can't stop speaking about the name of Jesus. Do we listen to you or do we listen to God? Who's the higher authority? Verse 21 says this, When they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. As we move forward in our study of Luke, our study of Acts written by Luke, what you need to know is that Luke has just laid out precedent for us. In in the legal world, once precedent has been set, it's much easier for the court to come back and say, we told you not to do this. So what you'll watch now is the persecution is really going to ramp up in the church as Acts unfolds because the court has just done what they can legally do. They've issued a verdict commanding them not to do something. So the next time they do speak in the name of Jesus, they're going to be breaking what they've just established as a law. Let's come back for the last time to what we started with. In God's kingdom, availability is more important than ability. And I want you to ask yourself this question as I wrap this up. Am I available for the things that God has called me to do? Am I available and acting on opportunities? Availability is much more important than ability. What you've seen with Luke this morning as he unfolds Acts chapter 4 is he has taken us beyond the curtain and he has pulled back the curtains so you can see behind the stage a much larger view of what it really means to trust God and be completely available in the midst of what seem like really trying circumstances, especially when it comes to speaking on behalf of God's kingdom. Peter wrote about this moment in time as a very aged man when he wrote the book of 1 Peter, looking back over the course of his life, he left these instructions about moments like this. 1 Peter 3.13, 
Even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. We make our decisions for Christ and his kingdom not on the basis of whether or not it's popular in society, but whether or not it's according to God's word. So we always have to ask ourselves the question, if we're a follower of Jesus, is my action in keeping with God's word and God's purposes? Or am I doing what I'm about to do in order to please man because it's really popular with man? What that means for you and I this morning is we have to be really sure we have clear teaching of God's Word, that we have a clear understanding of the things that God stands on so that we can take our stand. Peter knew exactly where God stood. Jesus had said to him, you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to speak to the things that you know. You saw the resurrection. You know it to be true. You've seen me go out there and tell people. He knew clearly where God stood, and so he was able to be very bold Two things for us to remember as we're going out the door this morning. What does this call for us in our life? I want you to take note of what happens when someone is filled with the Holy Spirit. When you think back over Peter and John's argument just now, what you notice is that being filled with the Spirit did not exempt them from times of persecution. As a matter of fact, it actually enhanced it. They were filled with the Spirit yet they still found themselves in a very trying situation. American Christians are beginning to experience intimidation in ways that perhaps has never been known in our country. For the sake of the gospel, we are experiencing times of persecution. But that should not silence us because when it doesn't silence us, God can respond. Persecution will follow. We should expect persecution, but when it comes recognize it didn't surprise God. It's part of the plan. He says, they will bring you into the courtrooms. They will accuse you. When you speak in my name, it's not going to be popular with people. So here's the second thought. That Jesus is the only way means we need to leave this room today feeling a weight, a heavy weight There's much that's popular in pluralism today in the world, not just in the United States, that sounds like this. There are many paths to God. What what makes you so sure, so self-righteous that you can say, he's the only way? Well, I stand alone on the Word of God, and the Word of God says that he is the only way, the only truth, the only life. So when Peter stands before the Supreme Court, and he says, there is no other name under heaven, He's not just talking to the Jewish men in Israel saying, there's no other way for you Jewish men to get to God than through Jesus, your Messiah. But it's okay if you're in Iran, you can get there through the prophet Muhammad. Or if you're in Asia, you can get there through Buddha. That's not what he's saying. He says there's no other name under heaven, meaning the heaven over Russia, the heaven over Iraq, the heaven over China. God rules over all of heaven. There's no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. That means all humans, not just the Jewish men, all people. No other name under heaven but the name of what church? Jesus. 
Let me pray that we would be bold this week as we carry that message forward. Would you pray with me? Father, as this church body goes out, it's your church. It belongs to you. And so I I pray on behalf of your church and ask that you would take what we've seen this morning and translate it into incredible confidence and encouragement that we would not shy away from opportunity to speak boldly in the name of Christ, no matter what it cost. Those who established the first church very, very clearly and faithfully carried this forward. And I thank you for what you caused Luke to write down in Acts chapter 4. Thank you for the example. God, I ask that you would remind us this week as we go into the classroom and into the office and whatever workplace we're in or into our own homes, that we can stand boldly, regardless of the persecution, because you're right there with us. And your Holy Spirit, who has sealed us for eternity, you've committed, will be there to give us the words to say. Father, I pray your blessing upon these individuals who have taken the time to study your word this morning and to sing praises to you. I ask that your blessing would rest on them as they leave now. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.